I'm Robert Riggs here with uh, Bill Johnston. Now, I'm the reporter part of this equation. Bill is the former federal prosecutor part. And so we bring to you in our True Crime podcast kind of two different experiences, but we intersect in lots of places. You've heard my story of, of where I came from, how I got to journalism. Bill interviewed me about it. And, and we're always having listeners ask, how did you get into this? Where did you start? So it's my turn to talk to Bill about how did he come to the law? How did he and why did he want to be a prosecutor? So let's start first, Bill, your, your Texas roots. Right. I was born in Dallas and my mother's family came to Dallas in 1841 and helped found Dallas and were um, just a little west of us is Turtle Creek. He, he named Turtle Creek and had a lot to do with founding Dallas. And so North Texas and Dallas has been in our family for 180 years. And so that's all I've known in terms of where I've lived and my family's lived for a long, long time. So just to focus this in, you, your family came to Texas shortly after it became a republic, an independent republic. Right. And before it joined the Union. Right. It's frontier. You're, you're frontier, from the frontier. Oh, big time. It was the Kiowa Indians here and were the indigenous people of this area and and other other tribes as well. And there were issues with them. In fact, within... Uh, I think a year of being here, my grandfather's grandfather uh, met Sam Houston, who was the president of Texas, met him south of Dallas and led him to Dallas for a conference with the uh, Native Americans that led to a settling of the problems for, for quite a while. Didn't settle the problem with the Comanches. That lasted 35 more years. But it settled the problem with other tribes in trying to get some boundaries for where everybody was supposed to be and, and live and not bother each other. Yeah. And it worked pretty well. They had no more killings in the group. And, of course, the, the Comanches were feared by all of the other tribes. They were some tough customers, and they they had several branches within the Comanche Nation and range, you know, from yeah. Texas to Kansas and west. And so, yeah, they were something else. But in this area of Dallas, it was not so much Comanche territory, apparently, at that time. But yeah, so my grandfather's grandfather was involved in that, and then they they lived pretty much at peace with him for a while. Do you have a sense then of how that shaped your ancestors' outlook on life and the world and how it might have affected you? I don't know. Obviously, these were some tough customers oh, that would yeah. come down here. Uh, they came down the first time, I don't remember if it was 1841 or 1840, and were driven out. Uh, by that tribe, uh, they it's just too dangerous, and so they came back again. But just the the guts it took to come this far west in those days. So I'm sure there's some DNA there that that is like that. Uh, like you, my father uh, volunteered for World War II, wanted to get in it. My dad left law school with six months to go. Uh, even though he had a bachelor's degree and nearly had a doctorate, he enlisted. He was an enlisted man and fought in North Africa and Sicily and Italy. So there's definitely some uh, of that, uh, I don't know what you call that, grit or something. Well, certainly, you know, they're called the greatest generation. I used to say to my children, the the best, you should be thankful you're not being reared by a um, World War II veteran family. 
right? And that you actually get to uh, have a discussion if I say no or why about it, because that didn't happen with the, right. the World War II vets. Right. For the most part, that's true. Yeah, my, my dad had a lot of difficult life experiences. And then when I was seven, my mother died of cancer and my dad just nearly broke my dad. But my dad was a, was very gentle and very sweet and um, loving. We were probably neglected a little bit just because he didn't know what to do. And we didn't have, didn't have a lot of money, but uh, he had to go. My dad had been a prosecutor in Dallas County since the 1950s. He left that for a while to work for a company as a lawyer. And then when my mom got really sick with cancer, uh, my dad couldn't travel anymore. So he came, went back to the DA's office in Dallas and prosecuted for Henry Wade, who was sort of a famous DA in Dallas. And my dad came back in time to do the legal work on the Jack Ruby case. Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald, who killed President Kennedy. And so my dad did a lot of the legal work on that case and um, didn't make a lot of money. He was a county employee, so it was not great when we were little as far as money, but it was rich in many other respects. And I absolutely idolized, if not deified, my father. So that's a pattern I followed. So watching him as a prosecutor and hearing the stories, did that kind of get in your DNA? Is that where it starts, the law, for you? If my father had been a trash truck driver or a painter, well, he was a painter, actually, but if he had been a, a professional painter or a, a rocket scientist, that's what I would have done. I was the youngest of three kids. My mom died. My sister was 14. My brother was about 10. I was seven. and we were lost. And so I clung to my father and idolized my father. And so because he was a prosecutor, that's what I was going to end up doing. And so you, uh, you went to Texas A&M where I went, right? I'm unfortunately a lot there a few years before you, but not, I, many. What, not many, but what'd you study at A&M? I don't think I've ever asked so, you that. So started out in accounting because I'd heard that for law school, you might want to have an accounting degree. And so I had the first accounting class at 7.30 in the morning. It lasted until 9.15. And after about a week of that, I was with 500 other students at Zachary Engineering Building. Remember that large building? Oh, yes. And so uh, after a few sessions of that class, I realized this was not going to be my cup of tea, not only because I was bad at it, because I was too lazy to listen to accounting for nearly two hours on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. So I switched in it to something almost as bad, economics, but ended up in business management because I needed to get my grades up to try to get in law school. So, mm -hmm. so, and Baylor Law School would allow you in after three years. And so I got my grades up really high my junior year and um, applied and got in Baylor Law School after three years and went straight in. I had no money. I, had, I needed to get done. So I went from high school graduation to law school graduation in about five years. Because I had to get it done. So I want to I want to back up to A and M now. You flirted with the rodeo while you were at A and M. Well, actually, uh, yes, I did. There, I was terrible. <laughs> I tried every event. I tried. I tried to rope calves. The calf roping horse was would stop, and I would keep going, mm -hmm. which was bad. Tried steer roping, and again, the horse was smarter than I was. It would cut after the steer, and I would keep going the other direction. So finally, when I was actually in law school, I found something I could do, which I could fall off a horse. And so when I was actually in law school by that time, another Aggie 
that went to law school with me, we we looked around the Baylor campus and there was we didn't see a pair of boots on the campus. We were disgusted. And so we thought we needed to, they would say today, reprint our man card. And so we went down to A&M to Snook, Texas, home of the Snook Blue Jays. And oh, uh, I know we, the town. <laughs> and so we rodeo, we did bareback one summer. And that went pretty well until, I have a picture somewhere I don't have it with me, until the last one, I came off really bad and landed and went straight up in the air, was kicked by the horse and landed on my head out cold and and had a re- really bad concussion. I had a couple others before, and that was the end of my terrible rodeo career. I was one of the worst rodeo cowboys in history. It should be noted. Well, I'm, I've seen this photo and I'm going to post it for everybody uh, to come see. It's a, it's a bit blurry and out of focus. It might've been, I was blurry and out the, of focus. Yeah. It might've been because the person to you was sort of like rushing <laughs> to help, but it's like you are levitating right horizontally above the horse as it's bucking, but you're completely separated from the oh, horse. Yeah. And I looked at it and went, uh, how is Bill still alive? Yeah, after I was that? on the way up. So yes. that, that picture I got, I came out of the, so more than the audience wants to know about bareback, but bareback, you have a little rig. It's, it's like a suitcase handle is all you have to hang on to. And I came out of that instead of falling off, which would have been merciful. I didn't fall off. I got back and I got on his rear end and he catapulted me up and had all the leverage on me. And I went really high and then landed straight down on my head. So, well, and so, you know, some, t- some guys would actually tie their hand into the rig. Yeah. I guess you didn't do that. That's I wasn't got. that dumb. Yeah, but I was pretty dumb, and I yeah, but but I that I told this we have a show about Macduff, the serial killer. You and I, based on your podcast, but I told in there I don't know if it made the air or not. One of the reasons relevant to this discussion, one of the reasons I I rodeoed, I I did bareback, is because I wanted to learn courage. Strangely. My mom died when I was little, shook me, maybe kind of scared a little kid. I didn't grow right. I was real small, actually, for a long time. And when I was in high school, I worked at a grocery store, and our store was robbed one night. And I was not right there at the time. I had switched with a guy who was there. And our store was robbed. One of our employees was killed by a horrible speed freak robber. Killed one of our employees and shot another one, the one that would have been me. And that scared me. And I didn't like being scared, but I, my father had no fear whatsoever. My father had no fear. You wouldn't know it. He'd been in horrible combat, Sicily and Italy, North Africa, but he quietly had no fear. I wanted that, but I didn't know how to get it. And so the first thing I thought about doing was I'm going to do something where I probably wouldn't be killed, but I could break my neck. I want to do that. And I want to deal with fear. And so I did that, and then actually it helped me later when I started dealing with really violent, really bad criminals who didn't like the fact that I was prosecuting them. And I ultimately learned to not be afraid. But that was part of the path, to not be afraid. And so both of us, we went to Texas A&M University. I got to tell the, uh, our listeners that the A, before we got there, used to stand for agricultural and the M for mechanical. And um, actually, when I started, you know, people used to call it Farm Boy A&M, but it was a land-grant college started by Lincoln. Lincoln started the land-grant colleges, and it was to build military 
in science. And so all of these land-grant colleges in A&M, and A&M still has a large cadet corps to this day, but it used to be all cadet corps for a number of years. They turned out more commissioned officers in World War II than all of the academies combined. George Patton famously said, if I want to win a battle, give me a graduate of West Point. If I want to win a war, give me a few Texas Aggies. So, uh, but we, when I was there, we categorized everybody and, uh, you fell into the category of the, of the Cowboys and you, cause there are lots, you, you would see if people were out of uniform and they're wearing cowboy boots and cowboy hats cause they're from West Texas and everywhere. But, uh, they were finally called goat ropers. So you were a goat roper, my friend. I was a wannabe goat roper because I was not, I was from Northeast Dallas. So I was from the suburbs. My brother had a horse. It was a good horseback rider. I wasn't. But yeah, so I, I, I had good friends from all over West Texas, tiny little towns, Matador, Kitty Quay, you name a tiny town in Panhandle. I had yeah. friends from there and I, and I liked it. I heard Bob Wills. Yes. Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And I said, this will do. This is wonderful. This is Texas. So, yeah, that was <laughs> part of my process. And so, you know, my family were a group of horsemen from East Texas, big, big horsemen. And they had the strange, dangerous tradition that you, they introduced the child to horseback riding by plopping them on the horse <laughs> at age five and whacking them across the hindquarters, and they wanted to see, will the child live? <laughs> it's crazy in <laughs> this day. I'd never do that to my – and we still ride. I'd never do that to my kids or grandkids. But uh, I had enough sense that I was not going to get on a bucking horse or anything like that. I didn't I have that through. sense. I didn't know any better. <laughs> where, where along the way do you know you want to be a prosecutor, that you want to go after the bad guys? My father had done that. My father was more in the the book end of that. So my father did ran the appellate section in Dallas, which is the part that does the appeals and the briefs and all that. He ran the grand jury for decades. And he had been involved in regular prosecution before that. But you have to start, if you want to prosecute, you better be willing to start at the lo very lowest level. And so I, being in Waco, I got a job in Waco. And, um, when I was 23 and started prosecuting ordinary cases, I might prosecute a traffic case in West Texas, mm -hmm. uh, up in wet West comma, Texas, uh, which is in the County, or I might prosecute a murder case because they would allow us to try everything. And so I, I learned about crime. I was very naive and it was, everything was very black and white. I think things are more gray in my mind about crime now. Yes. Certain crimes. Uh, but at any rate, I was, um, exposed to all that. I tried 35 jury trials in a year and a half, which was what I really wanted because I wanted to understand how to try a case, how to talk to a jury. And then I left that DA's office. It was controversial office. And I had a vision, a dream, kind of a wish, no more than a wish of being a federal prosecutor. I'd read about that. I'd seen some shows about that. And I knew the power was different and the, the level of integrity you were supposed to show was different. And so ultimately in the Waco, Texas area, there was a need for a U.S. attorney's office. There was no office there. 
at all. And we'd had some issues with the DA there and some others and a lot of drug crimes and violent crimes. And so some circumstances took place that favored me. I want to take you back as a young state prosecutor, 23, you're trying cases. Did you just kind of ever pinch yourself like, wow, with at this young age, I've got this kind of responsibility? I didn't get it. I, I didn't really get that. I was more, um, I saw it as a job, you don't make, you don't make very much money, but I saw it as a job where I'm going to be on the right, I'm going to try to be on the right side of every case, on the right side of things, and I'm going to try to do a better job on the next one than I just did. And so I was so much in the sort of in the moment of it, I didn't ever step back from it. You know, my dad was still around and my dad would call me and ask me about cases and how it was going. I, I'll tell you something I remember. I just thought of, I called my dad one time. I was prosecuting felony cases in a, one of the district courts there. And I said to my dad, foolishly, I said, oh, and this judge we're in front of, he's a real pro-prosecution judge. And my dad was quiet on the phone for 10 seconds. And he said, well, Bill, you don't want that. You don't deserve that. You want a fair judge. You don't want a pro-prosecution judge. And the judge actually was probably fair. He was just a hard sentencer. Mm -hmm. But I was so immature about things. I was like, wouldn't we want, everybody's on the same team. Well, the judge isn't on your team. The judge is supposed to be in the middle. But at any rate, I was trying to learn. I was trying to mature in that process. And I handled some really graphic, violent crime cases when I was really young. It's probably not smart. It was so naive. But it did expose me to the horrors of violent crime and the real, you know, to getting to know the family members, the victims. And at that, at a young age, it instills in you a duty to that, to the victims. So the, you do get exposed to the, the dark side of humanity and the, the finding, seeing the worst of the worst in people. Some really bad murder cases. Um, bad, you know, sexual assault cases that were just horrific involving young people. And uh, again, I can look now at, at that as the beginning of a long process of, I don't know what to call it, um, becoming acclimated maybe to gore and to horror. And, and I think that when you're doing the job, this is true sort of about the Branch Davidian case, that when you're in the middle of it, you don't, you know, you're not grasping all of it. And then when you step away from it or time passes, ew, you know, it's really heavy. In Kenneth McDuff case, you and I have talked about the Kenneth McDuff serial killer case. We have that podcast and show about it. You know, that was really, really gruesome. And it was sort of you're doing it, you're involved in it, and you're dealing with it. But, you know, what happened to Colleen Reed, the girl from the car wash in Austin, that's a marker in my mind still. That that was indelible, and it was like a, it's an awfully long answer to your, your question, but in that process of becoming acclimated, ultimately, some things were so bad that you don't get acclimated, you... You box it up and, and you deal with it later. So you got exposed to violent crime and the impact on people way before I did. You know, I, I started as a in Congress straight out of A&M and it was all white collar crime. 
And I certainly didn't get my teeth into it early like you did because they're kind of testing you. And, uh, you know, I was getting the, it was a huge staff and I was getting the worst of the worst, the jobs no one else wanted to do. And research in the Library of Congress, which, you know, there was no internet in those days. You had to dig through literally thousands of pages of records looking for stuff for the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I <laughs> I can remember a few moments I'm in there and I'm thinking, I went to Texas A&M for five years. And I got a degree in architecture with engineering and construction. And I'm basically just going to get coffee for people here or I'm dinging <laughs> around. And the, but then you know, it started to change. But it wasn't until I got into reporting years later that then I started to see the impact of violent crime. And boy, it's just like, wow. Hmm. You know, because my stuff focuses more on international bribery scandals and right. stuff like that. Right. But then you, find, you get to that point, too, as a federal prosecutor. Right. So some people in the Waco area took a liking to me. They wanted it. Felt like we really needed a U.S. attorney's office somewhere between Dallas and Austin. There was none. Never been one uh, that was fully staffed. And so a U.S. senator said, let's do it. Let's open up an office. They asked him to tell them to put me in it. I was maybe 27 or 28 at that time. And off we went. And I was in the U.S. attorney, had a U.S. attorney's office in Waco, Texas, a division of the Western District. I was the only one there. Had, didn't even have a secretary right at first. And at a little office in the federal building, and there were hundreds of unprosecuted cases, uh, drug cases from the area and violent crime cases. Just as an example, the Secret Service had a field office in Waco. My really good friend, Robert Blossman, was the agent, and he had like 70 cases that had been sitting there for months waiting for someone to prosecute. So that's just one of our agencies. So we immediately prosecuted all of these backlog cases and the cases got more complex and weirder. And when you deal with something, when you're young, that's really weird, you're looking for the next weird thing or the next difficult thing. And so part of a U.S. attorney's job is to not just take cases that are given to him, but to actually supervise, initiate investigations. And so, uh, was lucky to be involved in coming up with plans. Let's try to look at this group or that group. You know, go over to the Waco Police Department and say, who are the most violent people in Waco? Let's figure out a way to get them. Maybe they've been caught, been caught with a gun in the last year or two. It was never prosecuted. So anyway, worked our way through that. And ultimately, as you indicated, had some of the largest drug cases in the country, some of the most bizarre murder cases in the country, and cases of international intrigue and murder that uh, you're well aware of. Yeah, it's like Waco being in Central Texas was like um, <laughs> some kind of bottomless pit. Uh, you know, it, it, you're like, what in the world is going on in Central Texas? Now, I did find later in doing investigations that the prison system was just dumping out paro or people on early parole that were for some reason being coming to there, and that was part of the problem. And the meth. So methamphetamine was was becoming one of the largest produces of mm -hmm. our of our country and the illicit you know produces and it was within from Waco go draw a circle about 50 miles around Waco and that's where a high percentage of the methamphetamine for the southwest was being made and uh, some really violent people in those days the meth was so harsh 
and it was done in these clandestine laboratories that we would raid. And always they had firearms. Always, if they could have a shootout with the police, they would. And it was just a, it was almost like the cartel in Mexico now that is so anxious for violence. We had that with meth, methamphetamine back in those days. And again, having tried to work through all the fear of it, my job was to put their asses in federal prison. And I intended to put every one of them in federal prison, and I did. And I never lost. And that was that was uh, very satisfying. But I, I wanted, and we ultimately got here, I wanted every drug dealer, every violent criminal, that I wanted them to know where the borders of the Waco division were. And if they came from Houston, which we did all kinds of stuff, you know, where we would have someone come from Houston to deliver drugs or whatever. But I wanted them to know where we were and to stay out. And if they didn't stay out, I want to put them in federal prison and uh, for a long time. And we prosecuted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those cases successfully. And uh, then, like I said, ultimately led to some stuff like running into you uh, regarding a serial killer, which was none of the federal government's business. But the state wouldn't do it, so it became our business, which, as you know, the story, we use the drug laws to try to. Right. But anyway. Well, and I can remember, uh, you know, I made the transition from working in Congress to becoming a television reporter, started in New York. But I, I came to Dallas, and early on, I'm covering the the meth kingpins. And they all were using their own drug. And something about the meth mm-hmm. created this huge paranoia and violence. That's right. And the violence they were against people, strangers and women that, oh, wow, it was, uh, yeah. Right. It, it was uh, one of my best friends in law enforcement, Bob Wilkerson is his name. He was DPS, Texas State Police Narcotics Agent. And we were working on a group that had just been just a terrible group of meth manufacturers. And um, we were working on the distribution part of it and then the manufacturing part of it. And the last piece we had was a guy that was supplying the precursor chemicals, phenylacetic acid and other precursor chemicals. And we'd gone three days in a row, and it was like three in the morning, and this agent friend of mine said, Bill, we are so tired. Can we go home uh, and just pick this up tomorrow afternoon or whatever? I said, no, we're on a roll. Let's finish. So we finished writing the search warrant. We took it to the judge at daylight, and a few hours later, that agent was shot. And he was shot by a guy uh, near the town of West, north of Waco, Texas, that shot him with a brining high power uh, with a jacketed hollow point round that went through his shoulder, took out an inch of bone. The jacketed hollow point f- came off and spun through his nerves. He nearly lost his arm. He didn't. He, he went for years of recovery and everything. But anyway, my point is that guy in his system had methamphetamine, amphetamine, heroin. I don't remember all the, it's like five drugs. And you're right. It made them paranoid and violent. They would protect their turf. We had several cases where people had machine guns and sort of shotguns and so forth. It was, um, I'm glad we don't have, I hate it. I hate it for Mexico and our southern border, frankly, because that's where a lot of this happens. But there was nothing more dangerous than an Anglo-Saxon meth dealer with a machine gun. And they were everywhere. And that was a lot of what we did every night. I'm going to pause for a moment. When we come back, I want to get into how you established a relationship with two U.S. Marshals. 
Hi, it's Robert Riggs back talking with the co-host of True Crime Reporter, former decorated U.S. prosecutor Bill Johnston. Bill, uh, when we left off, we were talking about the the violence that the meth trade had brought to Central Texas and really East Texas, where I was from. But at some point, you form a, a partnership and alliance with two U.S. marshals that are Bigger than life. They're a throwback to the lawless frontier of Texas. Tell us about them. I was so lucky where I fell. I fell into that Waco U.S. Attorney's Office. and I was a kid and um, a wannabe cowboy. And I ran into three, as we would say, sure enough, cowboys. Parnell McNamara, Mike McNamara, and Robert Blossman, who was our Secret Service agent. All three could ride a horse like a cowboy from, you know, 100 years ago, could rodeo. Robert Blossman was a bulldogger. Uh, in other words, went 30 miles an hour on a horse and voluntarily came off onto the horns of a 700-pound steer and would would knock it down. And so these were real cowboys. And Mike and Parnell were from a hundred more than 100 years of law, of law enforcement. Their daddy had been a deputy U.S. marshal. Their grandfather had been a marshal, and so they had this law enforcement in their blood, but they they were U.S. marshals. They were as far away from being bureaucrats as you could be. Mm-hmm. These, these guys should have been roaming the streets of Tombstone because all about that was their nature, the directness, the courage. They were both crack shots. They would win martial shooting competitions all the time. But you know, they never shot anybody. They were so intimidating and they were so tough and they were so nice. <laughs> they, they were so nice. They gained the respect of hardened criminals because they were nice. They started with the marshals when they were teenagers as part-time so-called guards. They took people to Leavenworth, the federal prison in Leavenworth when they were 16 years old. These were unique guys. And again, here I am. I'm sort of this wannabe cowboy. I, I know it. I'm trying to learn it, but I'm not one. And so I was enamored really with these these guys, that what they stood for, what they could do. And that rubs off on you. Courage rubs off. And that personality rubs off on you. If you admire it enough, it really does. And I did. I admired it. And I wanted to be like them. And for some reason, they like me. I don't know why. They like me. And so we, on every major case that I had, those th- every case that involved any substance, those three guys were involved. Mike McNamara, Parnell McNamara, who's now the sheriff in McLennan County, Texas, and Robert Blossman. But they, you know, they were just my best friends. So I'm going to interject something about Blossman. So I was a correspondent covering the White House with President Reagan, a big horseman. And when he would go to the ranch to ride, Blossman was the Secret Service agent who would ride with him. So Robert, when Robert was, oh my goodness, Robert came out of Southwest Texas, or what's it called now, Texas State? Yes. On Saturday nights when he was there, there was a little band that would come downtown in the square. Well, it was George Strait uh, when he was starting out. And uh, that was Robert. And when he got out of Southwest Texas, at that time it was known as, he went straight in the Secret Service. His daddy had been a ranch agent for LBJ. He was raised around that. There are pictures of Robert with LBJ when Robert was like 13 years old. And so he, um, when you go into the Secret Service, if you have special skills, maybe you're a scuba diver, maybe you're a really good bike rider, 
uh, maybe whatever. And if the president is interested in that field, they'll flag you. And Robert was first assigned to New Orleans field office. Then he went to uh, Washington field office, was there when President Reagan was shot. He was uh, at the hospital when they brought him in. And then he was put on the presidential protective division. And Robert um, was a wrangler. That's what it was flagged as. They called him Boots. That was his name in the service. And he would write at Camp David, write English with President Robert. Robert could ride a donkey backwards if he needed to. But he would ride uh, those big thoroughbreds with President Reagan. Or he would ride in California at Santa Barbara on quarter horses and ride out there with him and with Nancy. And uh, President Reagan adored Robert and uh, properly liked his, the, it was the real, he was a real dude, mm-hmm. <laughs> a real cowboy. And President Reagan loved that. And so Robert became my next door neighbor when he came to, when he was in Waco at the Secret Service and I was with the U.S. attorneys and became a close friend. And so, yeah, those guys, and Mike and Parnell and Robert would do police rodeos together, by the way. I mean, not all that many years ago, they would do police rodeos, they'd team rope, steers, or whatever it may be. Uh, they did a wild horse race, or not a horse race, they did a wild horse something, scramble or something. They would put a horse in an arena. I think it had a halter on. Maybe it had a halter. And this these horses were bucking horses. They were wild horses. You would have three men, Robert, Mike, Parnell, would have to somehow corral and catch this horse. By hand. Just them. Figure out how to hold it put a saddle on it, get a man on it and ride it some distance. And they would have Robert get the head. Robert, as a guy from Australia once said about Robert, he, he was built like a melee bull, whatever that is in Australia, tough, big upper body strength. Robert would hold the horse and Mike and Parnell would put the saddle on and one of them would get on it. But that's, that's the toughness I'm talking about with these guys. And uh, they were great to work with and courageous and gave me good advice. Were so helpful to me. Well, all three of them I remember working. They would, they had the cowboy hat on, Western style shirts, badges, uh, Western style gun belt, jeans, boots. Uh, You knew the law was coming for you, (laughs) the long arm of the Texas law. And it, I I always felt like, uh, you know, I'm looking for Bat Masterson and everybody when you're around these guys. And, you know, um, what, might be implied with that look you described is a harshness or an un- or something overbearing. They were the opposite. They were so cool and they were so tough that they didn't have problems with people. And we never had any use of force issues at all, ever. And we had no issues with how they gathered evidence. We were never, we never lost a case. We were never reversed in a case and never had evidence suppressed. It was, it was a it was a very clean and tough approach, which uh, frankly we need more of. Well, he they seem to have this aura around them, and they could walk into the roughest honky tonk full of ex cons, and the kind of place would kind of go quiet. They didn't have to raise their voice or something. They just ask somebody, to, "Hey, will you step over here? I want to talk to you a minute." And they'd step over there, and there'd be a whisper somewhere, just out of earshot. It's the McNamara brothers. Yes. Shut the blank up. It's the McNamara brothers. And that, that reputation helped them. But it was, it was actually kindly 
and it was proper and it was dignified, but it was tough like you don't see anymore. Yeah. I want to let everybody know that Mike, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. We miss him. His brother Parnell hit mandatory retirement, couldn't just stay on the ranch, and ran for the sheriff of McLennan County, and he's now in his second term. His campaign slogan is, which I love, it just fits, is riding herd on the lawless. Right. That fits. And he is beloved in that county. Beloved. He is. He is. He's the real thing and and uh, still maintains that same aura and presence. Was there a favorite case you did, you did with him or is just, are they all? You know, the probably the most, one of the most difficult cases that we, all, all of us worked on, besides the McDuff case, that's a separate series of right. stories about yeah. finding those bodies and working on all that case. But the most complex, tricky, and frankly, scary case for me as a career um, that, that they worked on was um, a case involving what I alleged in a complaint was foreign travel in aid of murder for hire. And it involved two characters who abducted a man from Waco, Texas. He was lured near El Paso, Texas. He was tortured and he was buried alive and died, of course. And that was that related to a couple of characters who were who were tied to the ex-CIA mm-hmm. operatives, Turple and Wilson. There's plenty of books and movies about yes. this. That case, I took some risks in getting warrants for these two guys, Urich and Young, Sam Urich and Theodore Donald Young. I went out on a limb to get warrants for them because we were very concerned we would that they would eventually find their way where we could never catch them, like Cuba or Libya or someplace. And so I had to have help in trying to catch them and catch them quickly and to try and find bodies and so forth. And the Marshal Service helped a great deal. Danny Stoltz out of Houston that was in our other story. And Robert Blossman allowed us to get Secret Service help overseas. I had no idea what Secret Service could do overseas, but it was tremendous. And caught, caught a guy in Honduras with Texas Rangers and Secret Service went down there, which led us to the body and led us to evidence against the main guy who was the torturer, killer, horrible person, Sammy Leldon Urich. And, uh, but that, that's, that's one that stands out because we were all treading on thin ice how we approached it because we knew we were right, but we, were, we had to try to get some work done. Well, I don't know that many people really fully understand what the marshals do, but they are the premier fugitive hunters. People think it's the FBI. It's not. It's absolutely not. Uh, the FBI works cases, of course, but in right. terms of tracking fugitives, no, no. Uh, they, they do. They do that, but the agency that tracks for years yes. fugitives is the marshal service. Now. Most federal prosecutors would always ask for the help of the FBI. You were different in the in, in the respect that you liked the Rangers. Now, I'm presuming the reason you would turn to the Rangers is their their skill is investigating murder. In a lot of your cases, involve murder. That's right. Yeah, I worked many cases with the FBI uh, where they did a great job. FBI was primary in our federal bank robbery cases. I prosecuted a lot of bank robberies, including some very some really bad bank robberies where people were killed. However, it happened that so many of the cases I worked for the state narcotic service in Texas, DPS narcotic service, 
where we would have killings or missing people, the rangers did the work. There are some rangers I was really lucky to work with, including John Acock, uh, Joaquin Jackson out in West Texas, and others, many others, Captain Bobby Prince, that you just wouldn't find a better homicide investigator anywhere. They were fantastic. And it so happened that so many of my cases started as state cases, and so the Texas Rangers were naturals in that. Now, this cost them when the Branch Davidian incident happened uh, at the first day and realized the FBI was not going to work the crime scene. I, w- I was, it was my case, and I, I was desperate. And I thought, oh, no, what do we do? And I called, ultimately, the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety after calling the Texas Ranger captain. I said, you know, we have a really big deal up here, and we have to have someone to investigate this, Mm -hmm. someone to investigate this. And at that time, there were like 95 Rangers in the state of Texas, and they sent about 40 of them uh, to Waco to help on that investigation for much of the next year. But I relied on the Rangers really heavily in ordinary cases and also really substantial cases. Well, they, uh, and they certainly have that specialty in crime scene investigations. Looking back on it, do you miss it? Or I'm, after a while, did it just take such a toll? No. Well, had I been more mature, had I been a little older and handled things in a more mature fashion, and not let some things get to me, not overreact sometimes as I did, you know, I'd have been a little better off. But I, what I miss about it was the authority to make a difference, you know, like the cartels. You know, I think that we can take a more aggressive approach on that, and I would love to be part of that. And and other things. So I do miss it. I miss the opportunity to to make a different positive difference. And, um, but I think that for me, it was probably too much too young and it's, you know, it took its, there's a penalty. Yeah. So, well, you know, fortunately for me, I think I had that same unbridled enthusiasm, but fortunately I had bosses that had gray hair with a lot of experience (laughs) And they kept me in check. And if they hadn't been around, I think I'd have gotten myself in, in trouble by, <laughs> you know, pre- going over that line or, or whatever. Just didn't have the, the depth of knowledge. And they really wrote hurt on me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we were pretty autonomous up there. And that worked out really well, mostly. Um, but sometimes not. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, what is that line from? I think it's from The Natural where Glenn Close says, I, I think we have two lives, the life we live and the life we learn, the, li- the life we l- learn from and the life we live after that. And so, so often the things, you know, you think, gosh, I wish I, I would have understood this or that better, but you can't change it. And, and you're living in the wake of what you lived before. Well, I think for our audience and listeners and fans that, you know, we're about the life after that, and I hope everybody from will learn from us. But I, because I do believe that one of we're one of the few podcasts where the hosts have been inside the crime scene tape, and the guests we have on here are seasoned investigators and marshals and FBI agents and homicide detectives. You know, you're going to re- really hear it. And I think I think Robert, what what sets 
I would like to think us apart in many respects too, is that we're not giggling and laughing uh, about something or and and having a couch on the couch discussion of how interesting something was. Real crime, let's just say violent crime, while it is very interesting, it's mostly just tragedy. And but but you can't be down about it all the time either. You can't just be doom and gloom and and act like it's everything's terrible. You don't even want to discuss it. It's worth discussing because people can learn from it, both to not be victims, to learn how to improve their system, how what to demand of the police, what to demand of a prosecutor, and so forth. But I think that what we try to do is have a mature discussion. It's fascinating and interesting because we are on the other side of the crime scene tape. We're in the middle of it. But it can be entertaining in a very mature way about, hey, here's here's what happened. You know, you and I tell these stories and it's like, wow, you know, we were there and that's what happened. It tells you about human nature, tells you about sure does. Your, your government and what it can do and what it should do. And I think it might help some people. And, you know, even when we look at the headlines today of crimes and you, I think a lot of people tend to think, oh my gosh, what in the world is happening to our society and all. I can tell you that if you dig back into newspaper coverage of crimes in the early 50s or the 30s, you will find the same kind of brutality and senselessness taking place. It's just on a larger scale now because there's more of us and it's amplified. That's right. Social so, media. That's right. So news and social media. Yeah. You, everybody thinks, oh my gosh, there's a murderer next door. Well, hopefully there's not, but it seems like there is. So I would just say, uh, keep your wits about you. That's right. All right, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.